As many of you know, I have two little boys. Jimmy, who is one, just turned one, and Henry, who will turn three this upcoming week. For the most part, these guys get along really well. They, they seem to like each other, you know, they get excited when the other one's around. I love every once in a while I'll look across the room and I will see the two of them kind of playing in the room together. Um, it's what uh, child psychologists call parallel play. You know, they aren't, they aren't necessarily like playing with one another, but they're both playing peacefully in the same place. <laughs> and as a parent, I find this immensely rewarding. <laughs> yeah. Just one little thing that, that Henry does, actually, when, uh, when Jimmy's upset, uh, when Jimmy's crying, Henry will say, it's okay, Jimmy, I'm right here. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? <laughs> uh, but occasionally, that peace gets disrupted. Someone who has just walked into the room, <laughs> whose name I may not mention <laughs> now, on, uh, will grab... Uh, uh, he'll see his brother grab a toy and say, No! That's mine! Never happened to me. Never happened. <laughs> Global economics playing out in my living room. <laughs> Sharing is not in either child's wheelhouse quite yet, but occasionally the tension mounts in a more dangerous way. Occasionally, uh, the... Out of the blue, one of the children will pick up a toy and like bash the other one in the head with it. And it doesn't seem malicious, you know, it's not like intentional, but it's going on. You see it's what's going on. And uh, they're, they're bound to have some of that uh, play at work. But whenever that happens, whenever I come into the room and one of the children is crying, I think of my friend Jeff. Jeff is a family therapist um, whose daughter Layla was in Henry, Henry's toddler group um, in L.A. Jeff's kids are five and three. And when he comes into the room and his kids are upset, what he does is he grabs each child by the hand, one hand for each child, and he takes them and gives them a minute for each one to tell their own story, to tell their story of what happened and why they got upset, what led to that. For those of you with toddlers, you might be thinking, no way, <laughs> that doesn't work. But it, miraculously, it actually does work. It allows both children to be heard, but it also forces those who are in the wrong, those who did the hurt, to be face-to-face with those they hurt. This week, in Luke's Gospel, we find Jesus in a similar position. In one hand, he has the hurt, and in the other, he has those who caused harm. To appreciate the fullness of this moment, let's take a step back and get some context. In this reading, we've moved away from Jesus' road trip to Jerusalem that we've been steadily following. Because of the uh, liturgical calendar, we've jumped to celebrate All Saints today. And uh, so we're out of that narrative, and we're back in what what, uh, biblical scholars call the Sermon on the Plain, as in the sermon that Jesus gave on a level place. This sermon contains similar material to the more famous Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is found in Matthew. 
And in fact, they start with nearly the same words. We call these the Beatitudes. They're named after uh, Beatitudo, the Latin word for happiness, which is tied to the word Beati, which begins each verse. The original Greek was makarioi, but both of these words are multivalent and encompass notions of either happy or blessed. In Matthew, these Beatitudes list eight inversions of cultural expectations. Blessed or, blessed or happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. It's beautiful language. Beautiful language that elevates the conditions that society rejects. In that way, Matthew's Beatitudes invert our expectations for what makes us happy. Now, Luke's Beatitudes are more cut and dry. Luke is the Hemingway of the Gospel writers. He uses simple words with a gravity that draws our attention. Like Hemingway, Luke's curt prose is much clearer and emotionally charged. In Luke's version, Jesus' inversion of societal expectations is more pronounced. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are those who weep. Remember the other meaning for that Greek and Latin, those Greek and Latin words. Happy. Happy are those who weep. What? It doesn't make sense. Happy are those who are sad? With these simple statements, Jesus reminds us that the values of God are different from the values of society. God is not impressed with wealth. God is not impressed with fame. It has no meaning in the context of eternity. God's way, this way of being that Jesus calls the kingdom of heaven, is more connected with those who are lost than those who have it all. Lost sheep, lost coins, prodigal son, the, the praying tax collector, Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector. If Luke's gospel elevates a type of person, it is the lost, the downtrodden. It's easy to forget how much we have. Money, health, education, Relationships, skills, talents, travels, experiences. Because it is so easy to take those things for granted, to be numb, Jesus wants to wake us up, to open our eyes to what we have and to what others do not have. This language from Luke is meant to wake us up, and I don't know about you, but I can't read this passage without something putting me on guard. Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are full. Blessed are you when people hate you. Give to everyone who begs from you. These teachings are hard, but they are hardest for those of us with the toys. For those of us who say, mine, my money, my food, my time, my health, my comfort, mine, in the words of George Harrison and the Beatles, 
I, me, me, mine. <laughs> like a loving parent, Jesus takes us by the hand and gives us a chance to look into the eyes of those we have hurt. Into the eyes of those who have hurt us. To see one another, to see ourselves, to see God. And to reconcile with God and neighbor. To wake up to the divisive values we hold and see how they can be inverted. Last week we talked about doing just that. And one practice that leads us into it. Practicing vulnerability. As Brene Brown puts it, vulnerability is the act of sharing our whole selves. In her words, vulnerability sounds like truth and feels like courage. Now she also says, truth and courage aren't always comfortable, but they are never weakness. This is where we see the divide between church and social norms. Christian heavyweights, saints that we celebrate and step to, to step up with today, like Luke and Paul, saints like Francis and Teresa of Calcutta, these folks embrace and even celebrate weakness. In 2 Corinthians, Paul quotes Jesus as saying, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Power made perfect in weakness. What is that? Believe it or not, it is the very heart of the poignant commentary we might have missed in this passage from Ephesians today. Thousands of years of Christian mingling with popular culture has watered down this shocking language, this message of inversion. For most of us, we hear this language of Christ's power and the riches of Christ's inheritance and it sounds like the kingdoms of the world. We brush it under the rug. We are so used to Christianity as popular culture that we forget about its grassroots origins. Think about Jesus. Jesus was a penniless guy who wandered the countryside. He didn't have land or money. He depended on others for food and shelter, riches, inheritance, Power? Jesus was a peasant who was arrested by an occupying nation when his own people rejected him. He was executed on the ancient Roman death row. Like Jesus, there are 741 people in line to be put to death in the state of California. 741 out of 2,900 throughout the whole country. That's a whole lot right here in our state. As Christians, we can't help but remember Jesus when considering Proposition 62's potential removal of the death penalty. This image of a humble peasant teacher who died a shameful death inverts our understanding of power. It is power made perfect in weakness. Jesus reminds us that the way of this world is not the way of God. With God, the story does not end where we expect it. Even when we are ashamed, 
killed, forgotten, God can and will bring us to the fullness of life. We all suffer. We all weep. We all hunger. We all mourn. We may not be mourning or impoverished or hated right now, but through our experience, through our vulnerability, we connect with those who are struggling, like the Lakota Sioux tribe in Standing Rock and all who gather with them to protect their land, water, and the future of this planet. The good news that Jesus teaches, the gospel, is the comfort for those who struggle, who are in pain, who are vulnerable. It is the good news that however hard it gets, you will be okay. It is the good news that hope is in God. Right now, hope for the vulnerable and the powerless feels at risk. Whatever happens in this election, God's love will find a way to comfort those in need. It will. I know we're all ready for this thing to be done. (laughs) And I know there's some tension ahead of us. But as I think of the political anxiety of these final days of the election, I'm reminded of the final words of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Hours before his death, that modern saint gave his final speech. It's unbelievable. You should go online and hear him actually say it. But as I was driving in here today, I, those words rang to me, and I had to include this. Hours before his death, this is what he said. I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't really matter with me now because I have been to the mountaintop. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And God has allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I have looked over and seen the promised land. I might not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I am happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Amen.